Well, it is November 15th, 2017. Our message this evening is called Franchising Faithlessness. I'm really excited about the Rosales anoint, uh, announcement. It's anointing too. We as a church are multiplying. We're fruitful in every way. It has been one year since God spoke to me out of Isaiah 49 on the side of a road somewhere in Tennessee regarding uh, the kind of things that he has planned for us. Hundreds of families planted throughout the world. And we received word from Buddy Brasso today that in absolute LCM style, they're completing their move, they're joining with other missionaries, and they're seeing the kingdom advance and all without the necessary permits. So at 4 a.m., they are officially breaking Peruvian law and uh, moving without a permit. I would appreciate those of you that are up at that time, Mr. Charlie, to be praying for them because um, they want to get off to a good start and there's just no good reason to delay what they're doing there. If you're listening online and that offends you, uh, take it up with Perry Stone. So um, let's turn to Matthew 16. Y'all ready? I got to tell you, I'm feeling a little feisty tonight. Uh, We might wind this up just a little bit tonight. So sound booth, mind the volume because I won't be able to. And I would suggest that you pay attention tonight. Amen. So in Matthew 16, I want to pick up, since we have our pastor back, I want him to know that I pay attention when he preaches. And not long ago, he preached about the offensive conviction. And I just thought we'd pick up in Matthew 16, verse 17. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overcome it. The revelation that we have received cannot be overcome by hell itself. Hell is on the defense from the man who has heard from God. I have stood in the very spot where this was said. I understand its background, and my pastor has instructed me about its background. And I'm here to tell you, that the revelation that you receive in the kingdom of God will stand up to imperial Rome. It will stand up to the United States false gospel. It will stand up in your hometown against your relatives. It will stand up against the Samaritan backsliders. It will stand up in the religious capital, the Vatican of the world, because the revelation is a rock, and the rock cannot be displaced by the gates of hell. So while I'm talking about this revelation tonight, while I'm telling you about the state of affairs, I want you to remember something. The Spirit started our service during worship tonight by encouraging us to get our eyes on the one that is for us and not the one that is against us, to lift up our eyes. You might need to wipe away the sand so you can see the stars tonight. We're going to cover some very negative things. And as we cover each negative thing, I want you to dust it off and stand on the positive. I want you to take what is being done that is wrong and turn it around into what you're going to do that is right. Turn with me to Revelation 12. In Revelation 12, pick up with me in verse 11. All of you can quote this, but we need to hear it until it seeps down into our bones. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives. Come on, say that with me. They did not love their lives. Oh, that's a mouthful. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Saints, this church is based on the sacrifice of all, not the generosity of a few. And what you can see as we look around is we are becoming something. We are molding together. Every night of the week, somewhere in this congregation, the Word of God is being lifted up and souls are being saved. It no longer depends on a pulpit. In fact, the people have become more powerful than those few men that stand behind the pulpit. And this was always our goal. 
Turn with me to Thessalonians and I want to show you what I believe is being achieved and give you praise. I want to give the Lord praise for what He's doing in you, but I want to praise you for what you are allowing Him to do. How many of you know that's a rare thing for me? Take it where you can get it. Verse 4, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power. Somebody say power. power. With the Holy Spirit. Say Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. And with deep conviction. Let me hear a deep conviction. Deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And, you, and so you became a model to all believers. I am proud that when people leave here to go to the One Association churches, what you have seen here is a model to the other churches. I'm very proud of them. They're amazing churches. But something has started here that is a model to the churches. You're to be commended for that. That doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen overnight. This has been the work of a conviction that has prevailed over the gates of hell. Amen. Tonight I want to talk to you about that cherished conviction. Monday night we covered something called the misunderstood altar. How many of you were there? For every hand that is up, there will be some review in this. Don't miss out. As you hear the review, don't tune out. Don't you believe for a minute you know what is coming. We're going to build on what the Lord is showing us. We're going to grow the revelation He has given us because it's what we do. We're going to face the gates of hell, look it in the eye, tell the truth, and watch it fall and bow before our King. Let's begin in Joshua twenty-two ten. Say there when you were there. When they came to Gileoth, near the Jordan, in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. This phrase has captivated me. It has grabbed hold of me in all of the wrong ways. There was a time I was driving down Highway 6 and I saw a license plate that said the Apostle. And it was all I could do not to run it off the road just so that I could speak with the man in a more personal way. It captivated me. It grabbed me in all of the wrong ways. This has done the same thing. An imposing altar. Let me show you the Hebrew word. Rob defined it for us on Monday night. It had something to do with a new actress playing in a cartoon. You have it, Tara? It's a Hebrew word. There we go. This is Gadel. Gadol. That apparently has something to do with a little girl running around with a golden lasso these days. An adjective meaning great. The word emphasizes the importance, size, and significance of something or someone. They sat out and built an altar of size. An altar of significance. An altar of importance. But size, significance, and importance to whom? Who ordered it to be built? Where was the divine directive for it to be built? Who were they trying to impress? I'd like to talk to you about that altar tonight a little bit. And not just that altar. We're going to cover three specific altars in the Bible tonight. Is that okay with you? There was a time when I could pick on you when you said that. Because I wouldn't get everyone in the room to answer. But tonight, we're in one accord. We're in what one pastor called homo thumadon. What the Hebrews would call ihad. Man, it's good to be in one accord that's not a Honda, right? <laughs> Leviticus 17, verse 8. Say to them, any Israelite or any alien living among them who offers a burnt offering or a sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance to the tent of meeting to sacrifice it to the Lord, that man must be cut off from his people. When the Transjordan or Eastern tribes build this altar, they're halfway to sacrificing on it. 
Why would you build an altar that you don't intend to sacrifice on? It's like buying a car you don't intend to drive. A bottle of wine you don't intend to drink. A cigar you don't intend to smoke. You, you get the point here. I heard it said once that sometimes you save a cigar for a special occasion. Sometimes the occasion is that you have a special cigar. In building the altar, they are halfway to disobedience to the Lord. Because now they have the opportunity to sacrifice on something that God says don't. In building the altar, they're also halfway to being cut off from the Lord. Because they now have the opportunity to do what they should not do. They might be halfway to holy or all the way to hell. You'll have to decide tonight. That's part of this message. There are many things that are being done around us in the church world to the extent that it has defined our time. And you have to decide whether it's halfway to holy or it's all the way to hell. Deuteronomy 12, verse 4. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all of the tribes to put His name there for His dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, and what you have vowed to give and your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to, because the Lord your God has blessed you. You are not to do... As we do here today, everyone as he sees fit. Since you have not yet reached the resting place and the inheritance the Lord your God has given you. But you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And he will give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you will live in safety. You know, this brings up a very great question when we're talking about the eastern tribes. Why are the eastern tribes on the wrong side of the Jordan to start with? Isn't that a good question? Yes. Monday night we explored it in great depth. We're going to kick it around just a little bit tonight because it's very, very applicable to our times. I'm suggesting that we get a few questions out of this scripture. One is, why are they on the wrong side of the Jordan? The other is, were they doing as they saw fit or were they doing something that God would call faithful? There's a third question. Were they led by faith or by sight to choose to settle on the wrong side of the Jordan? Since we already covered some of this in great detail, I think the best thing that we could do was just gather a few highlights for God's perspective and we're going to be able to put this together in the law, the prophets, and the writings in three separate instances of altars, all of which men believed they were serving God, and none of them were. Is that okay? Yes. Numbers 32, beginning in verse 1. The Reubenites and the Gadites, who had very large herds and flocks, saw that the lands of Jazar and Gilead were suitable for livestock. What did they see? The suitability of land for livestock. Look at verse 4. The land the Lord subdued before the people Israel are suitable for livestock. And your servants have livestock. See, it's like a lock and a key. That's the lock. I've got the key. We have to unlock it, right? They came to a place that was suitable for livestock in their own judgment. And they have livestock. So here comes the question. If we have found favor in your eyes, they said, let this land be given to your servants as our possession. But do not make us cross the Jordan. Oh my goodness. This is an incredible hint. Do not make us cross the Jordan. Shouldn't they want to cross the Jordan? Isn't that why they set out of Egypt to go cross this Jordan? Shouldn't they want what God wants? But they have set their eye on something that God did not tell them to set their eye on. Oh, church, 
We get ourselves into a terrible position when we begin to want things that God didn't tell us we should want and then begin to negotiate to see if we can get them. We start talking in terms of what He will allow rather than what He has prescribed. So the answer to question number one, why are the eastern tribes on the wrong side of the Jordan to start with is clearly cattle, livestock, money. Any way that you look at it, they were interested in their finances. Moses' initial response was probably the right one. Look at Numbers 32, verse 6. Y'all sliding down with me? Are you there? Moses said to the Gadites and the Reubenites, Shall your countrymen go to war while you sit here? Why do you discourage the Israelites from going over into the land the Lord has given them? This is what your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to look over the land. Man, that's a heavy accusation, isn't it? You're as unfaithful as the whole generation that God already put to death. You're as unfaithful as your fathers were. Wow. How about verse 14? And here you are, a brood of sinners. Somebody say sinners. Sinners. Standing in the place of your fathers and making the Lord even more. Say even more. Even more more angry with Israel. If you turn away from following him, he will again leave all this people in the desert and you will be the cause of their destruction. What a fierce rebuke. Is that a fierce rebuke? All of the rebukes that you've gotten from Matthew Piro. Matthew slapped you with the Torah Piro. All of the correction that you've gotten from Wade the homiletic blade. All of the correction you've gotten from Eric, don't stop believing Stevens. You had never received a correction like that. That is intense. He's basically saying your daddies were dogs and you're a dog worse than your daddy and you're standing in the same place as your daddy. That's an incredible rebuke. The fierce rebuke didn't really spark repentance as much as a session or negotiation for him. In Numbers 32, verse 16, we see this continuing. We're starting in the law. We're going to move to the prophets in the writings. Numbers 32, 16. Then they came up to him and said, We would like to build pens here for our livestock and cities for our women and children. I sure am glad that they thought of the women and the children. But what did they think of first? That's really interesting. I need a house for my dog. And I'd also like a bedroom for my wife and a crib for my baby. What would you think about somebody who spoke that way? It's like woman and bass boat wanted. Send picture of bass boat, you know. But we are ready to arm ourselves to go ahead of the Israelites until we have brought them into their place. Meanwhile, our women and children will live in the fortified cities for protection from the inhabitants of the land. Notice the negotiation. The first thing that is mentioned is the cattle. And it's well before the kids. It's hard to think that this negotiation is an expression of faithfulness. It looks like an exercise in expediency. Consider Moses for a second. He's either right or wrong about the Lord's anger. This is either the place they should settle or it's not the place that they should settle. They were either spiritually motivated or carnally compelled. But this whole dialogue is beginning to sound like a Middle East negotiation or a camel auction, isn't it? Numbers 32, verse 20. I want you to notice the number of times if is used in this passage. Then Moses said to them, if you will do this, if you will arm yourself before the Lord for battle, If all of you will go over armed over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven his enemies out before them, then when the land is subdued before the Lord, you may return and be free from your obligation to the Lord and to Israel. And this land's possession will be your possession before the Lord. If, 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 then. That sounds exactly like a negotiation. If I can get this price down to 17000 will you take it home today? 
If I can get the tires thrown in for free, will you take it home today? If I can do this and do it all for 8%, will you sign on the dotted line today? See, this is a negotiation. The will of God is not negotiated. But notice it doesn't seem strange to any of them. The book of Corinthians tells us that these things happened as an example to keep us from setting our hearts on the things they set their hearts on. We ought to be warned as we hear this. Free from your obligation to the Lord and to Israel. Is that what anybody in this room wants? To be free from your obligation to the Lord and your fellow man? Man, be careful what you negotiate for, huh? What happens if you win? As much as this passage says, the reason that I'm bringing it up tonight is for everything that it does not say. The eastern tribes make a concession and Moses agrees to negotiated terms. But where and when is there a record of them inquiring of the Lord? At what point did they get out the Urim and the Thummim? Surely the answer to question number two, were they doing as they saw fit? Or were they doing something that God would call faithful? Surely that question's answered for us, isn't it? How can we say God is proud of them if he didn't tell them to do it? If there's no record of it in the Bible, how does that reflect on our lives? Look at Numbers 32, verse 28. Then Moses gave orders about them to Eleazar the priest and to Joshua son of Nun and to the family heads of the Israelite tribes. He said to them, If the Gadites and the Reubenites, every man armed for battle, cross over the Jordan with you before the Lord, then when the land is subdued before you, give them the land of Gilead as their possession. But if they do not cross over with you armed, they must accept, say they must accept, their possession with you in Canaan. See, the answer to question number two has to be that God never said to do this. It was a negotiated agreement. It was not the revealed worse, the revealed revelation or will of God. Verse 30 contains their price for failure. They negotiated their terms and it included a price for failure. If you fail to keep up the negotiated terms then you must accept your possession in the land of Canaan with us. Think on that for a minute. Sure, go ahead. Go try to do what God never told you to do. But if you don't do it, then you're going to have to go ahead and do what God told you to do. Does that seem right to anybody in this room? It seems that the original intent was that the Gadites, the Reubenites, and the descendants of Manasseh were to settle with the other tribes on the west side of the Jordan, in Canaan, but they successfully negotiated their own defeating compromise. Be careful, Christian. What you lobby for, it might become a lead anchor to you in your walk. We need to be very, very careful that we are not fighting for things that God didn't tell us to do. We need to be even more careful that when men of God and the body of Christ come to correct us, we don't talk them out of it. The only question left is, were they walking by sight or walking by faith? Look at Numbers 26, verse 55. Say there when you're there. Be sure that the land is distributed by... Be sure the land is distributed by... What each group inherits will be according to the names for its ancestral tribe. Each inheritance is to be distributed by lot among the larger and smaller groups. You're aware that Monday night we went through six scriptures that said the, the very same thing. This is not isolated. God intended for the land to be distributed by lot. Perhaps they had their eyes on material rather than spiritual things. They were indeed walking by sight rather than faith, weren't they? In fact, they're going to go down in history as the only tribes to have not had the privilege of God choosing their land for them. Who chose their land? They did. They have more in common with Lot, the nephew of Abraham, than they have with their faithful brothers. 
Is that how anybody would want to live their life in here? Looking and having more in common with the unfaithful than with your faithful brothers. See, one thing that a model does, that this church does as a model, it has a way of wanting you to be a better man. When you look around you and you see what the brothers in the room are doing, doesn't it inspire you to want to do more than you were doing at first? Don't look to be the only exception to a rule in this church. Don't look to be somewhere outside of the norms in this church because the norms in this church are headed the right way. As we look at the altar tonight, it's going to be the first of three. Pay careful attention to the way that the faithlessness grows into a habit. The habit may be successful in the world's eyes. It could even be great for cattle. It is successfully franchised for other faithless, factless, reckless, compromising Christians who believe that the size of their gathering is a suitable substitute for divine approval. When in fact, they've only succeeded in securing a monument to their monstrous abandonment of the core convictions of Christ. When we look around, what we're going to see is that all around us, people have negotiated the way that they will serve God. They have negotiated the way that they run their service for God. They have negotiated the way that they will accept believers. They have negotiated everything, and it looks more like the negotiation over a franchise than it does a model of Christianity. If you would like to own a Chick-fil-A, you can do it. You need a certain amount of money, you need a certain business plan, and you can buy into their franchise. When I looked at McDonald's in the 90s, it was $1.3 million to buy into the franchise McDonald's. The reason that people buy into franchises is they believe them to be so successful that if they too will follow these magic steps, they will be as successful as the other franchise owners have been. In examining why the eastern tribes built their altar, we find that all backsliders build an altar of some kind. It's how they live with their backsliding. Even Cain offered sacrifices and built cities. They want to pretend that they have the Lord's approval. Despite their many assertions, their actions will always give them away in the end. A man is going to be judged by his actions not judged by his intentions. Turn with me to Joshua 22, 22. And we will start to break some new ground here. The Mighty One, God, the Lord. The Mighty One, God, the Lord. He knows. And let Israel know. They assert three times with the name of God repeated twice, that their hearts are pure. El Elohim Yahweh. El Elohim Yahweh. They say He knows their hearts, and He does. The problem is they don't know their hearts. They've gone far enough into Balaam's error to have deceived themselves. Have you ever started out on a path that you were unsure about? And when you should have become sure, you couldn't see anymore. You were too committed to what you were doing. And it took an outside source to break you free. Oh man, I've been there more times than I could count. I think if you're honest with yourself, you've been there too. Jeremiah 17 teaches us, it was tonight's scripture in our bulletin. The heart is deceitful, 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man's according to his... What are you rewarded for? So does it matter if you meant well? According to what his deeds deserve. Six excuses. Six repetitions of God's name cannot change the fact that their descendants were the first to fall into idolatry. If you want to read about that, it's printed in the very plain Peshat of 1 Chronicles 5, 18 through 26. We're not going to read it tonight. 
Furthermore, there's six excuses or something we went over for two hours. I'm not interested in their excuse mongering. I want to look at four facets of what happened to them and carry it through the word and make sure that it never happens to us. And that in each case, we take our stand against what we see, pivot and turn in the right direction. Is that fair enough? Joshua 22, verse 24, and we'll begin those. No, we did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? Look at the franchising faithlessness. It happens when we are motivated by fear rather than faith. Somebody say fear. Fear. Rather than than. faith. See, it's easier to get people to unite around what they fear will happen than to have to trust God for what He says will happen. They've got no problem getting together and building an altar that is represented by fear of something that may happen in the future rather than trust God for what He said should happen. You're going to have to make sure, Christian, that you are never motivated by fear above and beyond Faith, what is the one thing you're supposed to fear? God. God. It's the beginning of wisdom. This altar that God did not say to build doesn't represent fearing God. It represents fearing circumstance. I submit to you that the vast majority of the world is driven by their fear of circumstance, not their fear of God. Look at Joshua twenty-two twenty-five. 25. The Lord has made... The Jordan, a boundary between us and you. You Reubenites and Gadites, you have no share in the Lord. So your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. Franchising faithlessness happens when there is an unspoken agreement that money rules. The eastern tribes blame God for placing the Jordan between them and their peers when in reality the eastern tribes chose it. And why did they choose it? Because their cattle were more important than their kids. If they were truly concerned about the welfare of their children, they would have valued connection to God's people more than material gain. It's easy for people to unite around material gain. What do your actions show? Do you care more about your children than material gain? Everybody would answer that question, yes. So would the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. But what did their actions show? Man, this is a time to evaluate our actions and say, do we care more about the spiritual welfare of our children than material gain? You might need to pivot and run in a new direction there. Joshua 22, verse 27. On the contrary, it is to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at His sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. See, franchising faithlessness, it happens when we do things God never said to do for convenience instead of consecration. They claim the altar was built as an act of devotion, but their actions show that it was based on convenience. It is simple to get people to choose expedience over consecration. You know why? It's easy and the other is hard. What do your actions show? This is why in this church we've learned that we rejoice the harder the task is. It shows more consecration. We rejoice in the difficult. It's why you want to show up and say, what is the hardest thing that I can do for the Lord? Not the easiest and the most expedient. Joshua 22, 28. And we said, if they ever say this to us or to our descendants, we will answer. Look at the replica of the Lord's altar which our fathers built. Not for burnt offerings and sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you. Franchising faithlessness happens when replicas are substituted for reverence. Oh, come on now. I was sitting in a spirit-filled church when the church that I had grown up in 
had its leadership in the back of the Spirit-filled church taking notes, looking to see how they did things. When do they do this song? How do they transition to that? Not because they wanted to be Spirit-filled. They wanted a replica of the service that was growing because theirs was dying. It's easier to build something pretty to unite around, especially if there's no sacrifice in it. It's much easier than it is to get people to live reverentially as a testimony that they're the people of God. They're trying to get a physical structure to testify for them instead of their behavior. Good thing we don't have that problem anywhere in the world today. Look, I love our One Association shirts. But a shirt with a scripture on it is not a substitute for reverential behavior that shows that you're a Christian, is it? In fact, how many dogs and devils do you see wearing Christian things? I see it all the time. I like to laugh and go, that's not your shirt, is it? Before we move on to our next faithless altar and we watch this franchise grow in the history of the Bible, I want to recap some things that you know. Those of you that were there on Monday night heard some of these, but not all of these. Think about them and wonder whether or not we're describing today or then or both. We've witnessed a people that walk by sight and not by faith. A people that valued their cattle over their kids. A people that valued convenience over consecration. A people that substituted replicas for reverence. A people that lived closer to the enemy than to God's people. And finally, a people that built an altar with absolutely no intention to ever sacrifice on it. A pretty altar. A bloodless altar. One that is more acceptable to everyone, but unacceptable to God. One that is good for attendance, but terrible for transformation. That's not what we want, is it? That's not what we're after. That's not what God is after. The whole heart of what we're sharing is the stark difference between light and darkness. It doesn't matter how many times they say, the Lord, the Lord, He is God. Their behavior shows otherwise. Where do we want to stand with those that have words or those that have deeds? See, I want to be in the category of faith-filled deeds. And I'm proud that you're in that category. We must fight for that culture. It must always be the culture that defines us. We can never fall into keeping up with the Joneses because the Joneses are not on a path to crucifixion. They're on a path to self-exaltation. Based on what you know of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, what you know of his life in the biblical narrative, you probably see him as a textbook example of idolatrous sin. Is that fair? It would be difficult to have ever guessed that God chose him and intended him to rule. But did you know that was the case? Turn with me to 1 Kings 11, 35. I will take the kingdom from his son's hands and give you ten tribes. Anybody know who is speaking to whom in this single sentence? It's God speaking to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. God is telling Jeroboam that he is going to tear out of Solomon's hands ten tribes. That he's going to put them in Jeroboam's hand. That he is going to leave only one tribe in Solomon's hands. That ought to have been a very assuring thing for Jeroboam. After all, God himself has given him the right to rule. And is he ruling over a small portion of Israel? He's ruling over the vast majority of Israel. How does a man entrusted with kingship over ten tribes end up such a pitiful example? The answer lies in the way that he began to franchise his unfaithfulness. Make it a model for others to follow. He goes down in Scripture as Jeroboam, son of Nebat. They did not depart from the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. When you see this, we might start in 1 Kings 12, 26. 
Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. Why? Did he have a word from God? He didn't? No word from God. What was the last word he received from God? I read it to you. You get ten tribes. They get one. So why is he worried about something other than what God said happening happened? Fear. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. Can you discern the death of faith in the replacement with fear in the passage? Judah hollered it out. Can you feel it? I'm sure he believed he was just being practical. When in fact his actions show he is actually faithless, don't they? His franchising opportunity for faithlessness was born out of his perception rather than God's prescription. Say that with me. His perception rather than God's prescription. It's a good thing you've never had a problem with that, huh? Nobody around us has a problem with that. Nobody here's eyes lie to them. Nobody here has perceptions. God, most of my meetings as a pastor are about the fear of something that will happen that has not yet happened. Most of them. Now, if most of my meetings are that way and most of my meetings are with you, what does that mean? It's easy to get people to unite around their perceptions rather than having the difficulty of following God's prescription. Can we all agree it's difficult to follow God's prescription? It hurts sometimes. Your flesh will be screaming not to do it. Good examples of men who couldn't do this. Samson couldn't follow God's prescription when he had his eyeballs. But as soon as they were torn out, he could see clearly for the first time in his life. Do we need more or do we need less? That's a great question for our time, isn't it? Because the reason we're franchising is to get more and more and more when we might, in fact, need less and less and less. Go to 1 Kings 12, 28. After seeking advice... Man, I love that passage. The king made two golden calves. He said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. The bigotry of low expectations. Here are your gods, O Israel, you, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up at Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. That's an understatement in the Bible, isn't it? The people went even as far as Dan to worship the one there. Of course you can see he cared more for his cattle than his kids. Do you know how? He correctly memorializes his true idol. He made a golden cow, not a golden kid. You can also see how convenience put to death consecration here, can't you? He just made a north and south campus. What could be wrong with that? It's all about attendance, isn't it? There's a real life attached to every one of those numbers. In this passage, he also franchised faithlessness by getting advice from his phone instead of from the throne. Oh, come on, pastor. He didn't have a phone. Well, he may not have called them on a Samsung, but he certainly didn't fall on his face to get truth from the throne. He went out to build consensus among his advisors, didn't he? It's easy to get people to unite around good advice, self-help, and motivational speakers. It's hard to get people to press into God's presence for a solution to their fears and problems. But which one yields better results? So how about you, Saint? When you have a problem, are you more likely to hit your knees or hit the dial pad on your phone? Do you Facebook it for the rest of the world to see? Somebody that I love, I haven't spent much time with in the last 20 years, but it was there when they fell in love with the Lord. Posted on Facebook today all the ways they were failing in life and then put screenshots of their husband's phone on Facebook because the husband said something ugly to the, to the wife. Well, that problem just got exponentially harder to solve, didn't it? What would have happened if she had gone to the throne of God instead? But see, our environment is to seek advice rather than to seek our king, isn't it? That's the environment that's around us. I'm going through 12 of these. I haven't told you. 
But you might find one easy to dismiss and another hard to swallow. This is the environment that's all around us. We need to define it. We need to stand in opposition to it. And most of all, we need to run the other direction from it. 1 Kings 12.31 Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people even though they were not Levites. The way this is said in 2 Chronicles, don't turn there, I'll just read it to you. 11.15 is just a little different. And he appointed his own priest. You hear the difference there? He didn't appoint priests, he appointed his own priest for the high places and for the goat and the calf idols he had made. See, if you really want to franchise faithlessness on a whole new level of success, you really need a more pliable priesthood. That's the key. Franchise faithlessness exalts personal politics above priestly appointment. It's easy to get people to unite around a pliable priest that they like rather than a priest appointed by God who brings heavyweight correction into their life. What are you looking for? A pliable priesthood? Or one that brings the heavyweight correction? No, I want to hear you. Do you want a pliable priest or do you want a priest that brings heavyweight correction? Remember tomorrow that you asked for this. For the franchise to work right, the priest must be good with gold. Gold calves, that is. 1 Kings 12, 32. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the festival held in Judah. What's it like? And he offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made. And at Bethel, he also installed priests at the high places he had made. On the 15th day of the 8th month, a month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings. Now I know as you hear this passage with me, you easily see how franchise faithlessness has exalted a replica above the real reverence of God. We have a false festival in the wrong month, wrong day. You can see that, can't you? You can see that, can't you? What may not be as clear though is that the faithless path of Jeroboam has led him to institutionalize man's sin rather than revolutionize man's character. Whether he set out to do that or not, I don't know. But now he has succeeded in a man's institution instead of God's spiritual revolution. Is that what you want? Do you think William Booth intended the Salvation Army to become what it is today? Do you think that John Wesley intended the United Methodist Church to become what it is today? Do you think Martin Luther intended the Lutheran Church to become what? You can do this all day long. How does it happen? It happens by not recognizing these trends and taking your stand. Not finding them pivoting and running towards righteousness. The franchise is growing, but are the people. The money is flowing, but does it result in people knowing more about their king or not? Where the eastern tribes only had one altar, and we could call that franchising faithlessness. Under Jeroboam, faithlessness was his business. And business was good. He led all ten tribes astray. He ended up with two campuses. I mean two franchises. I mean two altars. And he thought he did great for it. His spiritual successors would take this thing national. I mean, that is the goal, isn't it? I mean, let's just get out there and make the whole world twice the sons of hell that we already are. Go with me to Second Kings 16. Second Kings 16, verse 1. In the seventeenth year of Pekah, son of Remelah, Ahaz, son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was twenty years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem sixteen years. Unlike David his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. 
He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire, following the detestable ways of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burnt incense at the high places, on the hilltops, and under every spreading tree. You know, as we looked at this third altar of faithlessness, the franchise is growing to new heights. It's grieving to see of what valuing cattle over kids cost ultimately, isn't it? Participating in the franchising of faithlessness has caused the sacrificing of his sons in the fire instead of the solidifying of his sons for God's higher. Why do we have sons? We're supposed to be raising them up to be greater in the kingdom than we were. He ends up sacrificing his. We're supposed to train them in sacrifice for the glory of God, not sacrifice them to the expediency on the altar of whatever will draw the next crowd in. Is it any wonder that the contemporary Christian pastor's kids are twice the sons of hell that the devil in the pulpit is? How many of you have heard that pastor's kids are always the worst? How many of you have experienced that to be true somewhere else? Ask yourself, can that be? Ask yourself, is that, can that be? That happens when we do what is expedient rather than what is holy. Our kids watch it and they learn from it. And when you do what is expedient rather than what is holy, you are training them to become food for Molech. Never has there been a greater need for reformation than when you examine what has happened to the children of the franchise. We can and we must do better. In the name of Jesus, our spiritual sons in this house come before their fathers. You hear me? You have to take your stand. It's easy to say that we value our kids over our cattle. What do your actions do? Are you convicted in your heart that you must teach your children but you don't find time because of your job? Friends, that's unacceptable. That's unacceptable. Your children need their father to spiritually nourish them more than they need you to feed them bread. But both are good. 2 Kings 16, verse 10. Then Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. He saw an altar in Damascus, and he sent to Uriah the priest a sketch of the altar with detailed plans for its construction. In our new and improved world, our world of marketing and consumerism, Nothing is more important to the franchising faithlessness movement than the detailed plan for a new altar instead of a divine plan for the old one. Oh, I don't know if you let that settle in. Everything is new and improved. The billboards have to be changed every so often. The website has to be renovated every so often. We need fresh faces in the pulpit every so often. We need a new wind of teaching. We need it, we need it, we need it because we don't have the old wine that is better. We're not allowed to. Our doctrine won't let us. Nearly every seminar, every conference, every inclination of the franchising heart beats for the large new altar. I mean, we need it for the cattle. I mean, the kids. We need it. we got to keep the doors open. The people got to keep coming. If they don't come, then how do we do the good that we do? That presumes that the things that you're doing are good. How about 2 Kings 16, verse 12? When the king came back from Damascus and saw the altar, Man, he loved that thing enough to sketch it and send it ahead of time. When he came back to see it, like a man that ordered a brand new show truck and he had to wait six months for it to come in. How happy do you think he is when he gets there and he sees his altar? When the king came back from Damascus and saw the altar, 
He approached it and presented offerings on it. It wasn't until our time that there was ever a clearer example of choosing a man's institution over God's spiritual revolution. We would have to get all the way into this century to find a better example of the exaltation of a man's desire over God's. This stood alone in history as the singular worst example until our time. In the franchising world, attendance is king. And whoever has the most attendance is that king. He usurps the priest. He usurps the word. And he is definitely more important than the people that he purports to serve. But what does it matter? The franchising faithlessness is so successful that nobody notices it has Assyrian origins and roots. Do we care? Do we care that the book advertised on their website is full of Eastern mysticism? They sing well. What difference does it make? I like some of what the pastor preaches. It's all good. It's no problem that they never preach on sin. It's no problem that they have more in common with a Hindu festival than they have with the Word of God. 2 Kings 16, verse 15. King Ahaz then gave these orders to Uriah the priest. On the large new altar. By the way, large here is Gadol. There's a clear link between the imposing altar of the eastern tribes and Ahaz's altar. On the large new altar, offer this morning's burnt offerings and the evening's grain offering. The king's burnt offering and his grain offering and the burnt offering of all of the people of the land and their grain offering and their drink offering. Sprinkle on the altar all the blood of the burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I will use the bronze altar for seeking advice. We have now come to the culmination of carnality, disguised as the godly gaining of souls. The large new altar is the sign of sinful success. When franchising faithlessness, the only thing more important than a new large altar to draw large numbers of naive lame lemmings is what you can collect. Cattle. Golden cattle. The money that comes in from all of the people that come in, it finances the good that we do all over the world. After all, if you only had more cattle, I mean money, you could do so much more for the Lord. Or could you? In an age when everyone is looking for large and new, as a church, we're advocating for a small crew. Not consumers. Spirit-born saints that are ready to sacrifice on an altar the very lives for the glory of God. Amen. The kind of men who don't want glittering gold altars, they want to get back to the bronze altar of inquiry before the Lord. Amen. The kind of men who love not their lives so much as to shrink from death. In a world where eyes and altars, I'm sorry, in a world where, in the world's eyes, altars on every corner are the pinnacle of success. If we could just be everywhere, be the biggest, the best, surely God would be proud of that. Look at 2 Chronicles 28, and let's go to verse 24. Ahaz gathered together the furnishings from the temple of God, and, and, Ahaz gathered together the furnishings from the temple of God and he shut the doors of the Lord's temple and set up altars at every street corner in Jerusalem. What started as one misunderstood, misguided altar under the eastern tribes grew to two altars under Jeroboam. And by the time we reached Ahaz, they had franchised that thing out to put a Starbucks on every corner. Oh, it's not Starbucks' fault. It's what they're supposed to do. 
it would take us to the 21st century to figure out we could put the Starbucks in the church. I would rather see the faithless franchised altars smashed and the temple doors reopened. I believe that there is power in the name of Jesus and that that goes beyond the faithless franchising. Here are 12 things that you heard tonight. You ready for them? Always place faith above your fear. You hear me? Always. Always place consecration above convenience. Always put your kids before your cattle. Understand, I don't believe you have livestock. Your kids come before your employ. Your kids come before your need to sleep. Your kids come before your preference. Before you're worried about somebody else and what they're doing with their kids, take a hard look at what you are doing with your kids. If you do what is right with your kids, you won't have to worry about what others are doing with them. Always value personal reverence more than replica faith. It's not enough to wear a gold cross, a Christian t-shirt, or a Christian bumper sticker. Your reverential attitude towards Christ is supposed to be your advertisement for Christ. Number five, always trust God's prescription above your perception. Always trust God's prescription above your own perception. I probably couldn't say that enough, just to be honest. In here, where you apprise the Word of God, you still need to hear it again and again and again. Because when you get squeezed and that pig starts to squeal, the first thing you do is trust your perception above God's Word. Number six, always go to the throne instead of seeking advice from your phone. I especially mean that about your social media. Your social media very well might be sinful media. Number seven, and remember you asked for this. Never look for pliable priest instead of powerful priest of appointment. The first thing that people do when they get disenchanted is try to go find some weak-willed sister that wears a clerical collar to tell them that they're right and we're wrong. If your Bible doesn't tell you that you're right and we're wrong, then it doesn't matter what some pansy behind a pulpit says. By the way, I've been willing to meet with them at any point, at any time, anywhere. I've not found one pastor that stands at a distance and says what we do is wrong, cultish, all those things, that's even willing to meet with us. Never choose man's institution. Number eight, never choose man's institution over God's spiritual revolution. Don't side with the house. The house might not be right. You know what is always right? God's word. The house has gotten it wrong historically every time. There is no, no revival that has ever occurred that was driven by the church of its day. It was driven by a few men of God and the sinners that were gathered to him. Number nine, never sacrifice your spiritual sons. Instead, work to solidify them. You're in a house that does this and does this and does this and does this so you may not understand the necessity of it. Our entire goal is that by the time we're 50, there's 50 of you that can do what we do and our job becomes to sit back and just look to make sure you're doing it well. That's, that's, a, that's all we're trying to do in here. You'll never find a group of people so dedicated to working themselves out of a job as in this place. Number 10. Always choose the divine plan more than the detailed plan that is already in your hand. Men love to make their plans. And they love to trust in their plans. And they're almost never right. One of my personal dislikes is when men of God make a plan. They tell everybody they're going to do their plan. They, of course, don't because it was not right to start with. So they just make a new plan and pretend like the first one never happened. That's immaturity. There is glory in saying, here are my plans and I'm lighting them on fire because they were wrong and God is right. 
There's glory in that. Number 11, choose a small crew that wants to be renewed over a large new crew that wants to be entertained. Number 12, leave the glittering, glittering gold in the world behind you that we might get back to the bronze altar of inquiry ahead of us. Can you say amen to that? Amen. While at the bronze altar of inquiry tonight, you will meet with the real sacrifice of Jesus. Chains will break and a faithful army will rise. Could you stand to your feet?